The thing that was very interesting to me about acupuncture, it's funny, you know, just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how much I love shop class. I think it's really true. I, I do have this great love of working with my hands. I really do. And one of the things that I've loved about acupuncture, I think one of the things that drew me to it was it's a way of using my hands. And it, it's a way of engaging the body-mind without a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And it, I was very intrigued by that. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. When I lived in Taiwan, I found that new language and sentence patterns can be acquired in the comfort of your living room, but to really give your language legs, it needs to be taken out for a spin in the wild. It's the only way to find the groove of local phrasing, cadence, and peculiarities of expression. I used to hang out at a little tea and antique shop on the corner of Yongkang Street and Alley 52 where I lived. It was a quiet corner in the bustle of Taipei and I got to be friends with the Laoban, the guy who ran the place. It was a lovely way to spend an evening drinking tea and seeing just how far my sketchy Chinese could get me. Sometimes the issue was not my pronunciation but how my Western thinking infused my language and the shape of the world. One night, we were discussing a project that I was working on, and I took my American way of thinking into Chinese and ran it right straight into a wall of consternation. In the States, with our acute sense of individuality, we tend to focus on our talents and abilities. We measure ourselves by being, air quote here, up to the task, and peg our value and self-worth on the metric of what we can do or accomplish. This rather took my friend off guard, and I was quickly told, it's not a matter of ability. He says to me, of course you have the ability. It's just a matter of time. Now, at first, my Western ears heard this as a polite Taiwanese preservation of face, but as we drank poor tea, syncopated with the tick-tock of an antique clock as the topic of time and its influence on ability wound its way into the conversation with the other people sitting at the table drinking tea, I realized the greater truth of his words. As humans, we have tremendous ability to learn, to develop skills, and accomplish most anything upon which we set our hearts. It's simply a matter of time. Something might take years, decades, even a lifetime or two to accomplish. Relentless persistence, indeed, brings things to fruition in time. And it's also true, if it needs to be done before it can be accomplished, then for sure, it is time that is the limiting factor. It was a bit disorienting, dropping the story of ability and realize that anything could manifest with enough time and consistent movement toward a destination. The limit was not me. The limit is time. And while that is a real and true factor, it is best not confused with ability, which with cultivation is endless. Sometimes 
The lessons that come with acquiring another language, it's not the words, it's the perspective. Today, the guest of this conversation is me, Rick Gold, one of the founders of what used to be the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine and one of the guests of the history series. You'll find that conversation over in episode 323. Rick and I were hanging out at the Pacific Symposium a few months ago, and he said that he'd like to interview me for Geological. That sounded like fun, and as a podcast host, I'm always keen to hear the questions and glimpse the inquisitive mind of someone else. So, today, Rick is driving, and I'm going along for the ride. Let's see where this goes. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. 
a sharpened wire, and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Geological with our special guest today, the one and only Michael Max. Hi, I'm Rick Gold, and I have the absolute pleasure and honor to interview our host. I just so look forward to this. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's nice to uh, have somebody else driving. <laughs> you ready to be a passenger? Yeah, I'm ready to be a passenger. Let's uh, let's let's see uh, what you got here. On you know, I always like the scenic route. Well, I, I just am so excited to have this opportunity to interview you and find out what what's going on inside that beautiful head of yours. You've been doing this podcast since uh, 2017. You have what close to 350 episodes. I know, it's crazy. You're an oral historian of our profession in this country, and I really want to acknowledge that. You've accomplished something quite remarkable. You've allowed people with all different perspectives on our medicine to appear on your on your podcast. Um, you've created something for the ages. And it's a little strange to say it's an oral history because it's electronic and it's recorded. But truly, you fall into line with the great oral historians throughout history, and I really want to acknowledge that. So congratulations, and I think, I've, because I had such a curiosity about who you are and what brought you to do this, um, and what's made you stick with it for so long. You know, ideas are the easy part. Follow through and mm. sticking with it, that's tough. That is really hard to, to accomplish, and you've really, really accomplished that. Then you continue to accomplish that. So let's go back. Let's meet Michael Max. Find out what makes you tick, what brought you to the profession, and what brought you to create this podcast. So, where were you born? <laughs> Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, you got two Ohio, two Cincinnati, Ohioans on one podcast. Whoa, that's right. Yeah. Um, did you? Were you? As you grew up, did you imagine becoming a doctor or a, a broadcaster? No, I. I wanted to not be a doctor. <laughs> you didn't like I, I'm not kidding you. I I had no desire to do medicine at all. I don't like being around sick people. And you know, I'm a nice Jewish boy, so you know, it's the late 50s, early 60s as I'm, you know, a little kid. And uh, what am I being pushed toward? Like doctor or lawyer? Come on. Come on, bubbla. And neither of those had any interest for me. My my favorite my favorite class in uh, junior high. I remember coming home one day, very excited from shop class. You know, where you build stuff. You like use your hands and you make things. And 
oh, Rick, I loved it. And I remember telling my folks, this shop class, I, I love this. It's so cool making things. I want to take more. And you, you can imagine where that went. I don't even know if they offer shop in, in public schools any longer. I don't think they do. And, and I think it's actually a big mistake. Cause, big mistake. With, along with the arts. Because it truly is yeah. an art. Well, it is. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was just never interested. As far as being a podcaster, we didn't have podcast. I mean, <laughs> I was a kid, right? When we when we was kids, we didn't have podcasting. The closest you could get was being an AV geek, right? And, and that, first of all, you needed some real um, chops to be an AV geek in those days. There was tape and all kinds of equipment. And, uh, and then there was the stigma of being an AV geek. And I, I wanted to be a cooler kid than that. Okay. So I need, we need to fast forward then quite a bit here. Uh, did you, were you on your college radio station? No, no, no. I, none of this came, podcasting did not come on my radar until 2014. Well, and I, I, I was at a uh, one of these little neighborhood networking things, which I usually didn't go to, but I'd been on sabbatical and I'd been away for months. I came back, and I, you know, I thought oh, I, I should go network a little. I hate going to these things, but I thought I should go anyway. I never ever got a patient ever. I don't think from any networking that I did, but I meet this guy and he introduces himself. Hi, I'm Steve Stewart. You know, and I podcast and I teach people how to podcast and I'm thinking so what big deal but I'm a nicer person than that and so I I say to him okay podcasting like why would I want to do that I've got a nice practice that I do and I've got a uh, I've got a great website it brings me new patients every single week people call and say I want an appointment why would I want to do a podcast and Steve Stewart says to me, oh, that's easy, because the people who would listen to your podcast are not the people that would read your website. And I felt the ground under me wobble. I thought, oh, huh, I think he might be right. And it, it just engaged something in me. Well, I think I want to look into that. I didn't need it for my practice. It's like I didn't, my practice was fine. But the idea of, oh, there's something with this podcast, huh? And I thought, well, maybe I could do something. Maybe I could like talk to friends. We could talk about Chinese medicine. Maybe other people would hear about it. And if we could talk about it in an accessible, plain English sort of way, maybe they would go call an acupuncturist and get some help. So I reached out to some friends, and, and we just started having conversations in everyday English about acupuncture with the idea of trying to educate the general public. That podcast was called Everyday Acupuncture, and it launched in early 2015. It's like, eh, let me experiment. I'm curious, right? It was like shop class. The shop class that couldn't uh, continue with because my folks wouldn't let me. Now now I've got a shop class of my own. It's called a podcast. And 
it was fun. It was fun hanging with friends and gabbing about medicine. I used to do it all the time when I lived in uh, Seattle. But after moving to St. Louis, not many people to talk medicine with. So it was fun to gab medicine and maybe help people. I started publishing those. And about six months in, I had acupuncturists emailing me and saying, wow, thank you. This is great. And I found it very confusing because it was very simple Chinese medicine. It's like Chinese medicine 101 for the general public, plain English. And acupuncturists were listening and they were enjoying it. And it, I was like, I didn't make it for you guys. Like, how come you like it? But, but I took that as a, like another nudge. Oh, well, if they like that, maybe they'll like something that's more deep and geeky. And, and that was the inspiration to spin off Geological. Yeah. Well, we definitely jumped ahead a few steps because we went from not being interested in medicine to being the, one of the main voices of our profession to reaching the public. So, so let's fill in some of the gaps, okay? Mm. So you, you, what did you study in college? <laughs> well, I studied... I didn't know what to study in college. I went to college because I didn't know what else to do. I worked for a while, but, you know, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to go to college. I went to college. I ended up studying urban planning. Uh-huh. But as I got into my junior year, I, I became very disillusioned with all of it. And I didn't know what to do. And so rather than waste what little money my parents or I had... I dropped out of school at the end of my junior year because it just seemed like a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And I headed west because a friend said, hey, you can make some money planting trees in Oregon. And I, you know, as a 21-year-old, I thought, that sounds good. So I headed west and uh, kind of had a summer of adventure. This is in the uh, 60s or early 70s? This is in 1978. Oh, late 70s. Late 70s, 1978. And in that summer of adventure, I landed in Seattle. And I remember parking my VW van on First Avenue, walking down Virginia Street toward the Pike Place Market, looking out at the amazing view of the Sound and the Olympic Mountains. I think this is probably er late May, early June. And I was like, oh. This is it, man. This is where I belong. Michael in the Emerald City. It's before it was the Emerald City. Back then it was called the Queen City. <laughs> Later they called it the Emerald City. That's and, funny because uh, our hometown of Cincinnati is the Queen City. Queen City. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious. It's, it's funny. These little synchronistic, these tiny little like thin layer connections, isn't it? The nuggets. Little nuggets. Yeah. So I ended up staying in Seattle. And I worked at the Pike Place Market for, I don't know, five or six years. Oh my. I ended up working there on the day tables as a craftsman. I did leather work and then eventually got into glass blowing. Because guess what? I like working with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave it a go. Right? I used my hands to make my living. Just following my inclination. And it was great. I learned how to make stuff. I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to do business. I learned how to manage money. I learned how to manage myself. 
And I did that for a number of years uh, until I decided, you know, maybe I actually do want to go do something else and drop back into school at the Evergreen State College, which is the first place, Rick, that I ever saw somebody demonstrate acupuncture. This is in 1984. Now we're on the yellow brick road. We're on the yellow brick road, although there were red bricks there. And I remember, because I was taking this integrated course called Human Health and Behavior, which was amazing. It was everything from microbiology to family systems therapy. I mean, it, it was this fabulous integrated course of study, everything from the biological to the psychological to the spiritual all mixed in. Evergreen was great in those days. That's what we call integral education now. It was integral education. It was fabulous. And we had a demonstration. Someone came in and, and did acupuncture. And I got to tell you, I could not have been more bored or disinterested. I mean, for whatever reason, it did not land. And this woman's going on about, oh, we feel the pulses. It could have a quality of like pearls in a basin. And, and I, it's just, you know, look, I'm an open-minded kind of hippy-dippy dude, but it, it, I had nowhere for that stuff to land. Nothing. I got a big nothing out of it. It's not that I was... I didn't have a bad opinion about it. I, it just didn't land. It was just like, that's weird. I don't know what to do with it. It was some years later, after a friend of mine badgering me to go get some acupuncture for a chronic condition, and he badgered me. I mean, he was on my case. And I and I tried all kinds of things, homeopathy and this and that. And, you know, it's Seattle. I'm open-minded. Tried a lot of stuff. Nothing helped. He says, go get some acupuncture. And I, to shut him up, I went to the local school, like he suggested, and went to the student clinic and saw a couple of interns and got some acupuncture. And there were two interns there and one of them just happened to have hands and I remember her putting a needle into my back and it was as if I was a large still body of water and someone had suddenly thrown in a pebble and everything rippled it's like wow wow and then the other intern put a needle in, and it went thunk. And then the first intern again puts a needle in. It's like, whoa, 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 Thunk. A back treatment that went like this. And I, and I remember coming out of that treatment thinking, I don't know what that was, but that was something. It's interesting how you were already to, able to discern a different quality of chi from the practitioners uh, in that oh. experience. And you're face down, too. It wasn't about eye contact or any of that. Nope. She had hands. Her hands were communicating her heart energy and shin. and Yeah. So, look, I had a nice job doing high tech at that point. I'm working in the computer world and have a pretty good life. But I'm starting to use this acupuncture because, I don't know, something's there. And it didn't help my condition at first, but I noticed I was sleeping better. I noticed my digestion was working 
I didn't realize I had a digestive issue. Now my digestion is working really well. It wasn't as irritable. It's like, oh, this, this stuff is interesting. Eventually, my condition started to change. And I just started using acupuncture as my like go-to for healthcare. And I did that for a number of years. And then I got curious. Like, what's up with this? What is up with this stuff? I was just, how's this stuff work? What's going on? And I did a little, so I asked my acupuncturist and she says, here, read this. And she hands me web that has no weaver, which I read. And I go, that's interesting. I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I have no idea how to make sense of this. So then I read between heaven and earth, right? Ephraim and Harriet's book. Also, very interesting. I have no idea how to make sense of this stuff. So I, I just kind of muddle on with my life in, until a certain point where I was thinking, I don't know if I want to stay in computers as a long term. I'd been in it for a number of years and I don't know, I was, I was thinking of a change. Didn't know what to do. And uh, this acupuncture thing kept rattling around at the back of my mind and it just wouldn't go away. So I checked myself into a school. Oh. Um, at, and I talked to my original acupuncturist. This is several years. And I said, look, I, I don't know if I want to do this. I just paid off a student loan for a, a degree that I don't use. I don't, know, you know, I don't know if I really want to do this. And she says, look, go for a quarter or two. If it's something that you want, you'll know within that time. You can continue. If it's not something you're interested in following, then you've learned more about something you're interested in and you can just leave. Never hurts to know more about something you're interested in. You can't lose. That's what she said. Good advice. It's great advice. And so went to school. And that was in Seattle? Seattle. The uh, Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine had just opened up. It wasn't even accredited yet. And I ended up going there. And what year in the calendar and what year of your life are we in here? This is um, 1995. Um, and I was actually looking into it earlier than that. I had to do a year of prerequisites at a community college. I had to do my, my anatomy and microbiology and some stuff like that. Because they didn't teach that at, at Sion. Mm -hmm. It's like all the Western stuff, like, bring it with you. We're not, we're not, we're not teaching it. So I did a year of prerequisites. And I think I started there in 95 is what it was. It was in the second class. You're in your thirties by now. I am in my late thirties at this point. Late thirties. Yeah. My. I was 41 when I graduated. Interesting. And so when did the light bulb truly go on for you? say about six months into it. And, and again, it, it, it's not, it wasn't like, kaboom, this is it. It was more like, huh, this is really, there's something here. It's more like a nudge, you know, or like a, like a little itch or a little whisper. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I remember talking to folks on the podcast. I, I talked to one cat because I like to ask them the same question. How'd you get into this? And he said, this is so great. He said, well, uh, I was in a restaurant 
and I heard two women talking behind me, and one of them said, yeah, I just signed up for acupuncture school. And he thought to himself, yep, I'm going to do that too. And he went and signed up the next day. Yeah, we've all f- we followed different paths to get to here. That's for sure. We really do. I, I tend to be a little cautious, I guess you could say. And was there, uh, what about your personal life at that time? Did you have a marriage or children or? No kids. I was married, had this nice job working in high tech. I, you know, I'd gone from a, a, you know, hippie craftsman, like barely keeping the rice bowl full to, uh, you know, a nice job in tech. I had a house, retirement funds, you know, nice car, late model car, always started up when I turned the key. (laughs) Back when cars had keys. <laughs> and was your wife supportive of this shift in your uh, focus? Yeah, she was. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. So you she, fe- was a, she was a psychotherapist. So, you know, healing healing, and that kind of thing, we, we both kind of caught into that. Somehow, even though I was avoiding medicine, the, you know, healing was interesting to me. And I imagine what you saw, how you could use your verbal and personal skills and communication uh, effectively as a practitioner, that it helped stir your uh, passion more. I don't know. I think that might have come later. Later. The thing that was very interesting to me about acupuncture, it's funny, you know, just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how much I love shop class. But I I think it's really true. I, I do have this great love of working with my hands. Mm-hmm. I really do. And one of the things that I've loved about acupuncture, I think one of the things that drew me to it was it's a way of using my hands. And it, it's a way of engaging the body-mind without a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And it, I was very intrigued by that. Because my wife was a psychotherapist. I actually studied psychology. But it was like, man, by the time I got done studying that, I didn't want to do it. I wanted nothing to do with it, really. <laughs> All that talking, didn't, it didn't fit for me. And did you resonate with your herbal studies uh, well? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. So you, you continued your computer job during school? I did. Yes, I managed to create some new services at the company that I worked for that allowed us to do better customer service for um, the people at that company. We started to bring things in like like remote email and dial-in capabilities. This is before the internet hit. And I was able to increase our private network services I ended up increasing the uh, the services and the and the support and the amount of time that the services were available, like twenty four seven, and saved us a bunch of money, and had me in the office twenty hours a week and on call for the rest of my life, and that let me get through school. So I was very fortunate that I had the a job that gave me the flexibility to be able to do school and do work and pay my mortgage. And with the cohort you were in school with, were you on the older were you on the older part of the spectrum? No, I'd say I was pretty much in the middle. Oh yeah, I know. And these days, uh, you know, a lot of us were on second and third careers. Yeah, There's been a title shift in the profession, the educational component now. Yeah. 
So, you know, I'm in my late 30s. There was a woman who was in her, I think, early 50s. Uh, some other folks around my age, including a, a good friend who, I, who also came from Missouri, where I grew up, even though I was born in Cincinnati. So it was kind of fun having two corn pone dudes from Missouri in the class. And then there was a younger woman. I think she was <laughs> the younger woman, uh, maybe late 20s, early 30s. So I'd say we went from like the early 30s to the 50s in terms of cohort. And you went straight through school and sat for your boards. Yep. And then went to work. And then opened a clinic, opened a pra- clinical practice. Opened a clinical practice, found a space that I could share with another acupuncturist. and Still, still in Seattle. Still in Seattle. And what was happening in your, your idea about what was happening in the profession at that time uh, there was, there was, the school became accredited while you were there, I imagine. The school became accredited while I was there, which to my great relief. And the, the state board was the national you took. The na- yeah, the state the state took the national exam as as criteria for licensure. So I took the NCCAOM, and that got me a license in Washington State. Yeah. And because of your podcast, you knew that that exam didn't just get handed down from above. It took a lot, a lot of years and a lot of really dedicated people to get that, get that to happen. Rick, I had no idea the magic that guys like you made happen. I had no idea of the sort of emergent phenomena that happened in the 80s that allowed our profession to self-organize. I'm hitting it here in the mid-late 90s, and it's just like, oh, yeah, those people with you know the hoop to jump through, and I'll jump through the hoop so I can get my license. You took it for granted. Yeah. I I, I, I didn't just take it for granted. I, I, I had a little chip on my shoulder about it. <laughs> These people and you know all their requirements, and I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. I was not very appreciative. I didn't know to be appreciative. In some ways, it's not my fault. <laughs> Just like I think it's not anyone's fault. So often, we're in the midst of something, and it might be really, really great and wonderful. We have no idea how great and wonderful it is, because it's the only thing we've known. Yeah. Right? So let me give you an example of this. I'm in my clinic today, and someone's phone isn't quite working the way they wanted to. And he says, ah, these things, they never work. It's like, nope, you're wrong. It always works. 99.99% of the time, it works, and it works perfectly. It's at 0.0001% when you notice. Just the other day, I was in discuss speaking with someone, and I said, can you imagine the visionary people who invested to build the cell towers before there, were, there was one person using a cell phone? And the genius that goes into creating our phone. We take even you know our kids watch this uh, remodel a house, and they re- and I said, do you realize when you turn on a light switch, what happened for that to happen? From the creation of electricity, the invention of you know, and then the mm-hmm. wiring of the house, and then the you know, so we take so much for granted. And I think gratitude's one of the things we can do to help alleviate our blaséness about all the beauty and the miracles that are around us pretty much all the time if we slow down and pay attention. Amen, brother. Yeah. I'm, I'm really with you on that. Yeah. Uh, there is so much, you know, look, even 
you know, thinking the political moment as well. You know, we, we live in a time and in a country too, may I add, where you can pretty much say whatever the hell you want, right? This place sucks. We can say that. How lucky are we to live in a place where you can say, I think this place sucks because most places in the world, you do that, not so good. No. I mean, just small things like that. It, and yeah, so gratitude. I, let's, let, let's dig into this for a moment because I think it's really important. I think it's really key. And how do I say this? it's almost like a meme at this point. Like, you know, gratitude, yeah, it's a great thing. Like meditation, it's a great thing. I think there's a lot here. And and I'd like to get some of your sense of it. Look, we're, we're both nice Jewish boys. I don't know if you got this. I remember going to Hebrew school. I get something I was not grateful for. I did not want to be there. But I remember one of my teachers, and this made no sense at the time. And he was talking about the prayers that you do before eating your food, because, you know, you want to be grateful for that. But then there's also some prayer for, like, the ability to digest it and eliminate it. That, like, in every step of every process to recognize the wonder and the miracle and great, you know, it's like, it's great to be able to eat. Are we also grateful that we can also poop? I mean, is it possible to take our vision and our awareness and our perception and our sensibilities into like all phases of something that way. But evidently, I remember this teacher telling us, you know, the, here's the prayers for these different things that we would usually never think about. But I'd like to get your sense of gratitude practice, you know, beyond gratitude is helpful. I think it's, it's not just helpful, it's vital. And mm. I think it places us in the circle of life and uh, a recognition of our place and um, and our responsibility also. Um, even you were talking about you know, somehow that food got to your plate. Someone recognized uh, that this was something worthy of growing. Um, it wasn't a mush. If there's a mushroom, someone tested it and found out that they uh, didn't convulse after after eating it. So up and down the the pike, and it seems that with gratitude the neural connections in our brain begin to form and it becomes a self a self-generating positive process and it takes mm. us can take us away from the persistent worries and and the deeply embedded uh, stimulus response to fear and anxiety that uh, really shapes shapes human life um, out of necessity in our heritage but often misplaced now or, or overzealous you know, we have anxiety not about survival, but more just existential things. It's not just intention, too, because uh, I find that with intention, uh, like when I put a needle in stomach 36, I'm thinking, what's the positive things that I'm doing? What am I, what am I asking the, the body's resonance to, to vibrate at? And what do I want to accomplish with this? And with that comes the gratitude that there is that potential. And it was discovered by by ancient people in our, in our in our medicine, for instance, you know the herbs. When we study the herbs, I mean, it's it's boom. You know, it's just it's mind blowing how everything somehow was tested, 
and people were uh, cognizant and resilient and persistent and and recorded their responses to these things and then responses of their patients and i think all this falls under this in my in my own heart and mind the gratitude that i get to practice this medicine for instance and the my gratitude that i get to be alive in this world um that i get to experience the diversity of human emotions and i have the capacity to learn I have the capacity to to teach, and uh, I think it's it helps create an environment of of the potential of our evolution of a species as a species, and uh, I think that's a vital. You know, we aren't here just to survive; we're here to evolve, and I mm. think that gratitude and recognition of the steps that bring us to each moment has has value. Something uh, I give to a lot of times to patients is after the needle's in and there's a period of quiet time, is to become aware of the space between thoughts and allow yourself to dive deeply into that space and then observe and just, or not even necessarily observe because observing, you're one step away. Just be, be in that space between thoughts. And most of the time, it's experience the bliss of that space. Yes, what a, and what a relief. Oh, God, what a challenge. But I think that's one of the extraordinary things about our clinical capacity is we can provide those moments in a unique way, quite quite profound and quite magical and repeatable. I guess it's, if it's not always magic, if it's repeatable. I mean, there's no trick to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's real and it's, you know, it's penetrating and um, it's somatic. And now we're discovering it's hormonal and it's bioelectrical and it's you know it's, it's all these other things too as we see an integration of our medicine into the Western model. So um, we're we're blessed and privileged to practice this medicine, and um, it's really quite remarkable. I totally agree. I've been at it for 25 years now, and again, it came as this kind of a nudge. I want my life to be different. I've, I've enjoyed this computer thing. It's been good. It's not bad. But there was this nudge. Yeah. It was a nudge and not a nudge. <laughs> it was a nudge and not a nudge. And I, and I think that's important. You know, a nudge will take you in one direction. Yeah. And a nudge will, will take you in another. Yeah. I, I have found that the nudges, they've never been wrong. They might take a long time to come to some sort of fruition that I go, oh, that's what this is. As, as we look back uh, with awareness, we see how things that seem to be irritants or even positive, potentially negative really were important steps on, on the path to, to where we are. And if we have gratitude, with, we express it then. But let's come back to Michael Max and out of the uh, philosophy. <laughs> So you're you're happily practicing, you're getting you're digging being in a practitioner, and are you still a consultant in the computer world? Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well integrated diagnostic theoretical and practical skill. 
You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. No, I don't, I don't consult in the computer world at all. I, yeah, I'm a practitioner. You know, it's funny. Sometimes my podcasting friends will, will say things like, uh, so are you quitting your day job? <laughs> it's like, why would I want to quit my, I love my day job. No, I, when I left the computer world, as wonderful as it was, I thought that's it. I'm, you know, I'm done. Well, it turns out that the computer world has been very helpful to me in being a podcaster because how do I say this? It's it. What first got me into the computer world was a big surprise to me. I was in graduate school actually. And word processors were just kind of coming into being. And I thought, Hey, this is, this stuff looks cool. Like I can really get work done in a hurry. And it turned out I had a knack for learning software. I can't code a computer. I don't know how to do that. I had a knack for understanding software and had a knack for telling other people how to use it, which is what got me started. And having that knack for understanding how the technology, how the tool works, like what's the tool and what can you do with it? Again, I'm back to shop class in some ways. So that, that time in the computer world made me very comfortable with, here's a groovy set of tools evolving very quickly and you can have a lot of fun with it. Certainly. So you're busy in your practice. When you met that person who talked to you, set a little spark, a little nudge mm. about uh, podcasting. The ground shook. The ground. I want to be very clear about this. The ground the shook. Ground shook. Okay. When he said that, it's like the ground went liquid for a moment. Are you still in Seattle at that times. time? No, no, no. I've been in St. Louis. I've been in St. Louis at that point for about five years. So, so what, what, what sprung you from Seattle? <laughs> a girl. You want to expound or we'll just accept it? <laughs> a, a girl in China. Uh, okay, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's back up here a bit. So I lived in China for a while. So it's, you were married to a psychotherapist when we last... Okay. All right. Story. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I'm like in my 60s. It's convoluted at this point. We don't have to be linear. That's not a problem. I just want to. Keep yeah. That ties. That's not a up. problem for us. So a couple years after graduating from acupuncture school, uh, the relationship with my previous wife, as is sometimes the case with previous wives, uh, decided to dissolve that. And so I had an opportunity when I was. I guess I'm about 43, almost 44 at that point. I don't have a relationship. I now don't have a house. I've got a tiny 
fledgling acupuncture practice, but I've got some open space now. And I'm a fairly new acupuncturist. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I should go and study in China for a little while. So I, I knew Andy Ellis because that's who I got my herbs from. And I knew he'd been to China. And I knew he knew something about Chinese. And I said, hey, Andy, I'm thinking of going to China for a spell to study. Where should I go? And Andy Ellis says to me, how long are you going for? I said, I don't know, six months, maybe a bit more. I don't know. It's kind of open-ended, really. He goes, okay, good. In that case, why don't you go to Taiwan and study some Chinese and then go to the mainland and do Chinese medicine in Chinese? So that's what you did. You know, it was another one of those moments where I kind of felt the ground go a little bit liquid under me. He says, you should go to Taiwan, study some Chinese. And I thought, huh, I'm going to do that. Didn't even, uh, you know, I'm like that guy. That was a moment. I'm like the guy I told you about. He overhears people saying, I'm going to go to Chinese medicine school. And he does that. And he said, go study some Chinese in Taiwan. I'm like, yep, I'm doing that. And you had any proficiency in other languages at that time? or? No, I'm terrible with languages. I'm really bad at it. And uh, I, I had a little, I had Chinese at Siam because their program is geared to teaching you to read medical Chinese, not read menus, not, not read newspapers, read medical Chinese. And the program wasn't that strong at that point. They were just getting it up and running. And I'm a dull tool in the, in the, in the language shed. So I, I could do it a little bit, but I couldn't do it that well. So I thought, okay, go learn some Chinese. I'll, I can do that. I think I can do that. Why not? I mean, I've got an open-ended thing here right now with my life. So I went to I went to Taiwan to do that. So a language institute there. I went to the uh, yeah I went to Shidai. I went to the Guoyu Zhongxin, the what are they called Mandarin Training Center in Taipei, and um, and I did that for like a year and a half. Oh wow! I'm slow. So you stayed a whole year and a half. Well, I, I, I I'm slow at language acquisition. No. No, I understand that. I mean, you, you could probably be studying for you know ten and a half years and still be a beginner, but you—that means you you walked away from your life in America for that year and a half, and, and then I went to Beijing. Uh huh. Were you uh, observing tr- practitioners during that time, or did you go to Snake yes. Alley? Did you go to Snake Alley in Taipei? I did go to Snake Alley. I, th- um, that place was pretty wild. That was a Fellini experience, wasn't it? That's a Fellini experience. Yeah, they got that crazy night market. And- yeah. Snake Alley, and then uh, yeah, no, that's a that uh, yeah, that's a wild scene. Longshan Temple right there, then alleys full of hookers. It's 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 a crazy place. Fortune tellers and face fortune tellers, all kinds of fortune tellers, and the street food over in that night market. Oh yeah, it's great. No, I did meet a doctor in Taiwan because I got really sick when I first got there. Oddly enough. And uh, there was another friend of Andy's who was in Taiwan brushing up her Chinese, also a Chinese medicine doctor with plans to go to the mainland. So we became friends. And uh, she took me to see this old guy uh, for some herbs for, for my cold. And this guy is a fossil. He's in his early 90s. He's got like three teeth. Pictures of him treating... Shang Kai-shek's son, right? The dude's been around. Yeah. 
and he prescribed a formula. You're going to love this, Rick. He prescribed a formula for me. I got it in the, in, in the powdered herbs. I had no idea what, what it was. So we asked his herb girls who had put it together, what's in this? Because, you know, I'm trying to learn something even though I'm sick. And it turns out he's given me like four or five different formulas, all mixed together and then modified with a few single herbs. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the hell? If I attempted a formula like this with my teachers, they would have been like, why don't you go back to the drawing board, Mr. Max? That's, you know, you're crazy. But I took the herbs home. I took them. I figured I'm going to be in the hospital tomorrow. You know, it just, I was really sick. Very bad head cold. Super bad. And I always get bad coughs. That's the thing that originally took me to Chinese medicine. I, I was not... I was not expecting anything helpful. But I woke up the next day 80% better. And here's the kicker. I usually get a dry hacking cough. It can go on for a long time. I got up the next day and coughed. And I had a mouthful of gooey, easy-to-expectorate phlegm. It was a miracle. So as my Chinese got better, I would spend time in his clinic. Oh, wow. Great. And he was very, and he very generously took me in. Were you treating people in your program or at that time, were you honing your clinical skills? There was no program. I'm hanging out with this old doctor. I'm mostly learning Chinese at this point, and then I'm practicing a little on foreigners, um, you know, friends and students that I have there just to keep my skills up. Did you get a scooter? Everybody in t- Taipei has a sc- I remember walking I, on the sidewalk in Taipei, dodging scooters like a, like a pinball. That's right. That's right. Remember that bumper sticker? If you don't like the way I drive, stay off the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. No, it, uh, yeah. No, I eventually did get a scooter. Yes. Yeah. Were you yeah. getting up and going to Tai Chi in the parks in the morning or? Um, at initially, no, because I was just studying Chinese. I was just, and I, and I was spending a lot of time at it because... Again, I'm kind of a dull tool in the language shed. So it, it took a lot of effort. Well, you hit a lot of dedication. I mean, you're already in your 40s at that point. That's not usually the high point of a learning curve. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, um, but you kept your license active in America as a practice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then and then I went, I went to Beijing for a few years and studied there. A few years? Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, I, I got an introduction from one of my teachers to a Shanghan Lun, very, very well-known Shanghan Lun doctor in Beijing. And, and so I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go to Beijing and study Shanghan Lun with this doctor. And it turns out my language wasn't quite up to snuff. And I just couldn't, I couldn't quite keep up. I studied with her for a bit, but I, I just, I, I couldn't quite do it. I was almost there, but I wasn't there well enough. And so I, I stopped studying with her. I did study at some of the hospitals as well. So when I got to Beijing, I was studying in hospitals and I was studying with the Shanghan Lin doctor, but I had to give that up with her because I just wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off. It's very disappointing. I had to go back to language study. 
And around you in Beijing at that time, there's massive amount of building and uh, commerce, and you're 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 after the beginning of the me- uh, economic miracle, I guess. Things are really this shifting. Is, this is 2002. That I was in Beijing, so it was already pretty built up. Yeah. Man, I remember getting there in the fall, and I, it's like I couldn't see to the end of a city block. It was like science fiction level pollution. It's something else. Yeah, it was really something else. So then what nudged you to come back to America? Well, so I was in Beijing for about two years, and then I really missed Taiwan. And I wanted to study more with this old doctor. So I reached out to him and said, I'm thinking about coming back to Taiwan. Can I spend time in your clinic again? He said, yeah, come on back. So I I went back to Taiwan to spend another like year and a half there. And so it was five years before I make it back to America. So the, like when you got in touch with your teacher in Taiwan, was it through a, a, a letter with a stamp on it? Was it a phone call? Oh, it's a good question. Where was technology? I think I, think I called him. And did you, was the communication in Chinese, in Mandarin? Okay. Yeah, no, he didn't speak any English. Uh-huh. I think I called him up. As I recall, I called him up. He didn't do email. I think I called him. So I went back to Taiwan, but something very important happened when I was in Beijing. About the time I stopped studying with that doctor, because I couldn't keep it up. Dan Bensky, Craig Mitchell, and Dr. Uh, Ma Chun were in Beijing. They were, they were doing some PhD study at, the, at one of the schools there. And Craig Mitchell, we're having dinner, and I'm like all upset because I couldn't hack it with Dr. Nia, and he hands me this thin little book, Zhong Yi Shi Da Lei Fang, 10 Key Formula Families in Chinese Medicine. It's a thin little book. He says, Craig Mitchell hands it to me, and he says, Chinese is hard. Keep at it. In the meantime, read this. It's really interesting, and it's about Chang Hun Lin formulas, so a little something to keep you going. And when I first start reading the book, I'm thinking, yeah, my Chinese is really bad because I've never read anything like this about herbs before. And as I continue to read the book and I realize I actually am understanding it, I realize, wow, this is a treasure. This is a whole different perspective on looking at herbs and looking at constitutions. This is the work of Dr. Huang Huang, who I think many of you know about. And eventually I had the very good fortune to translate that book into English. So you know, some misadventures along the way, but also fantastic opportunities that came out of really moments of abject failure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, five years later, I come back to the United States. What, what, what instigated the, the change then? I felt like I'd learned, I had a pretty good sense of what my teacher was teaching, but mostly it was a sense that if I didn't leave Taiwan soon, then I probably wouldn't leave. Because I really enjoyed the life there. And Taiwan's a... Were you coming back to see family every now and then? or were you Every now and then. I think I came back two or three times in that I five see. years. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed living in Taiwan. Taiwan's wonderful. I, I, when I went there, it was a revelation. I just couldn't believe how... Much I enjoyed it, and how good the food was. What did now? What was a revelation for you about the place? Well, I, I had, uh, I, 
I was much more of a fan of the People's Republic at that time. This is in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, I was in Taipei and toured Taiwan and did some clinical observation in 86. And I, I was, I didn't, you know, I thought it was Chinese light, I guess. I, I don't really know exactly what my silly mind was thinking. But uh, I've, I love the vibrancy of the, of Taiwan, the, the physical beauty, the kindness of the people. Mm. Uh, I was getting up early and going to the parks, and there are just hundreds of people doing Tai Chi. And I got drawn into a group that was doing it, the Yang-style form I was familiar with, and they took me to dim sum. And yeah. it was just – and the National Museum, I mean, gosh, the, the, and the story behind the bringing of those those artifacts out of China was an intriguing story. It was just really uh, very, very special. And certainly was a – because I had, I had been in Beijing and Shanghai – uh, in 81 and uh, at that time mainland China was still everybody was wearing blue and there was two hotels in Beijing for that was all they had and Shanghai was very rustic I guess I'll use the word uh, mm. and Taiwan was a bustling modern place and it um, I remember the the airport was very very modern and the highway going into the city I mean the airport's about an hour out of the city and uh, it was just very, it was a very positive experience for me. And I understand how you would, you know, be intrigued by it and stay. But again, you were at a different stage of your life. You know, you had already been married, a professional. You're in your, four, I guess you're in your late 40s almost now. Mid 40s at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm so glad we're having this discussion. And maybe your listeners are too, because I don't know if everybody realized how, how deeply embedded you are in the, in the medicine, in the culture, and in the language. It's... It's very impressive. You know, I, I just kind of followed it. And at a certain point, I wasn't going to leave until I felt like I'd squeezed something of value out of it. I, I wanted enough language that I could do something. I wanted enough learning that the trip would have been worthwhile. Not just like, oh, yeah, I went to Asia, but... I. I I needed to feel like I had something tangible that would allow me to understand and use the medicine and, and maybe even, hopefully even, share it with my colleagues, Yep. right? Which I was able to do with, with Huang Huang's book. And thank you for that uh, contribution, sir. So while you're there, or in your mind, is home Seattle? If you're thinking if I was going to go home, it would be Seattle? In my mind, home is Seattle. Yeah. And so I decide I'm going back. And before I go back, because, you know, I've been working my ass off for almost five years at this point. I decide I'm going to go back to the mainland, just take a walkabout for a few months, just stroll around China. It's like I got enough Chinese, I can do that at this point. And I've been working hard. So now I'm going to go not work and just go enjoy China for a few months. Although I had a little translation project I was working on for the lantern at that point. So I just, you know, I took that and was hanging out and ended up going to uh, Yangshua. I thought I'd go to Yangshua for a few days. Yangshua is just outside of Guilin. It's that place with the beautiful gumdrop mountains and the rivers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met a girl there. Uh-huh. I met a girl and, and that was a girl that later I went 
back to China to see, you know, if there might be something here. I went back to Seattle, three years in Seattle, and then um, back to Beijing and see what might happen with this girl. And, and? We end up in St. Louis, Missouri. Was she a, a practitioner of Chinese medicine? or Not at all. She'd like to be, but there's no schools here in the area. But... So that's your, that's your, this is your current, this is your wife? We're in, this is my, this is my current wife, yes. Wow. <laughs> so there is a love yeah. story in there. There is a, there's a love story in there. So did she, she didn't want to come back to St. Louis, so what? No, she was happy just to get out of China, I think. She was but, happy to go wherever we were going to go. So. She was up for an adventure. So do you, you went back to St. Louis because you had roots there? We went to St. Louis Partly because of roots. I grew up here. I was born in Cincinnati, but grew up in St. Louis. And what happened was, is we've been trying to get her a visa to come to the States. And it, that just wasn't coming through. Not coming through, not coming through, not coming through. I, I was working for a while at uh, PMPH in Beijing, but that that just wasn't my cup of tea. And uh, trying to think, like, what next? Do we go back to the States? Do I stay here in China? Things are going nice with the girl. Buddy of mine from St. Louis, who has an acupuncture clinic, says, I'm going back to the West Coast. If you'd like this clinic, I can make it very easy for you to walk into it. He had a very nice, very busy clinic. And I said to him, thanks much. That's really a generous offer. I grew up in St. Louis. I have really no interest in going back. Thanks much. The universe, being what it is, three days later, brings forth the visa for the girl. So, hmm, we have an open door to St. Louis. I guess we'll go there. Very cool. Here we are, almost 15 years later. And your uh, national license transferred to Missouri as far as being a practitioner? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you've got to go through the rigmarole here and fill out the papers. Uh-huh. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, the nice thing about an NCCAOM licensure, as long as you, as long as you keep it up, right, you got to keep paying them every four years and, and recertifying. But then whatever state that you go to, they'll send along that, that you're a qualified practitioner. And so, you know, it's kind of nice. Absolutely. You don't have to go take exams in each state. You just, they just say, yeah, this guy's qualified and you get a license and you go to work. So you come back to America, and the landscape of our profession has evolved. It's become a little more mainstream, little more mainstream probably. Mm-hmm. There's probably a little more insurance coverage. Depends on where you live. Where you live, and um, and you were able to you walked into an existing practice and were able to to nourish it and grow it. Yes. So you're doing all you're doing all that now. You're in, you're well into your late forties. Yeah. And, Maybe um, early 50s at this point. Probably early 50s. Because I remember being back in, this is, I remember being back in Nanjing, working on the book with Dr. Huang Huang, right about the time I turned 50. I remember turning 50 and deciding to go to Yixing to go buy some teapots. And I got on one of these little buses that take you between towns this is on my 50th birthday. I'm going to Yixing. I'm so excited. Yixing, this is like Mecca for teapots. And halfway to Yixing, I have a panic attack. Remember it so clearly. I had a panic attack. I am flipping out. I'm 50 years old. I don't have a house. I've got a practice in Seattle. 
but no house. I'm driving a crappy car. Haven't put money in a retirement account for I can't tell you how long. I don't have a relationship because I'm just starting to kick things off with this woman I met some years ago. I felt like I had nothing. It's like everything I thought I was supposed to have at the age of 50, Rick, I had none of it. And I'm on this bus with chickens and smoking Chinese people and spit on the floor. And I'm kind of, I'm actually kind of losing my mind. It was, it was very scary. And I, you know, I don't know where this stuff comes from sometimes, but there was this thought that comes up. I'm so grateful for this. I had this thought that came up that was like, all right, Mr. Max, you have totally screwed your life up. Congratulations. Fair enough. What would you have changed in the past 10 years to make it different? Guess what answer I got? Nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. The truth is not a thing. I wouldn't have changed any of it. None of it. And so now here I am, 50 years old, on the way to Yixing, coming off of a panic attack, realizing... Sometimes you just need to completely rearrange what you think it's about. Change of perspective. Same data, set different perspective, different outcome. I'm telling you, my friend, I don't know where it came from because I was pretty flipped out at that moment. I, I don't know where that kind of consciousness comes in sometimes um, to be able to talk, your, not talk yourself out of it, but just recognize um, where I've been holding ideas that, that were flawed. Yeah. You access your higher, your, your innate intelligence, your higher self. I don't know. Yeah. Grace of God. Okay. So um, I don't want to lose our listeners, so I'm going to just I'm going to keep the the flow going here. So you're back in St. Louis. You have a one a burgeoning relationship, a growing practice. You meet someone at a an event. The earth shakes. And you become a uh, uh, oral historian of traditional Chinese medicine. <laughs> Should put that on my card. I like that. Um, how did you come up with the name Geological? Oh my God, this is great. I have uh, a lovely patient who is. Um, she works with her hands. She's kind of a poet. I mean, she's like truly a poet. Like truly a poet. And uh, I think she's from Scotland or Ireland, someplace. She's got a she's got a great accent, and she comes out of a, a treatment one day, and she goes, "Oh, Michael Max, what was that? I don't know what you did. That was absolutely geological." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Geological." I pull out a yellow post-it notepad and I write down the word geological. This is before I was ever podcasting. And I put it in my desk drawer because that's funny, right? Geological. It's like, I just, I just wrote it down because it tickled me. And, and I do that kind of thing. I hear something, I was like, oh yeah, write that down. And uh, years later, I'm looking for a name for the podcast. And I came across the yellow post-it note, geological. Like, yep, that's it. Wow. So with the podcast, um, I mean, I really don't know the mechanism except for, you know, we're, we're recording this and you're on Spotify and, and services like that. But, you know, mm -hmm. anyone who might be thinking of doing a podcast, how do you then, what are the next steps? Well, it's, it's fairly simple these days. 
I mean, how'd you get the word out about what you were doing? You already had the original. Well, even, even before the geological, you had your original one, Everyday Acupuncture. That's right. How did people find you? That's a good question. Well, for one, you can go to Apple Podcasts or wherever, and you can search for whatever subject you're interested in. I think that's initially how it grew. People just search acupuncture, acupuncture podcast, something with a name like Everyday Acupuncture Podcast, very easily. And I think that's how the first one grew. Just very organic people doing search. And then geological, I think I probably had a mailing list. Mostly what I've done, I think, to help grow geological is just remind people, hey, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the quality right? Word of, of mouth doing, is always the best. Yeah, word of, and the quality of what you're doing is certainly, but you, you don't really have a marketing budget per se. No. I mean, other than like a newsletter and no, I, I, not really. Your website. Um, can I, you, I expect can people you, to talk about it if they like it. Can you share with the audience the, the, uh, the scope of how many people you're reaching? How many listens you get for uh, well episode? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a little hard to tell sometimes because just because there's a download doesn't mean people have listened to it. Yeah. So I, I can tell you the downloads. Sure. Generally speaking, an episode after it's been out for a month probably has around 2,000 to 2,300 downloads. Mm-hmm. And of course, people can backload the whole back catalog. They can download that and listen to any podcast. And we have something like 30,000 downloads a month of the podcast in total. 30,000. Unique visitors that download? Um, well, not necessarily unique. No, okay. But, um, you know, in any given week, I, I think we probably have 1,000 to 1,200 unique listeners. And that's really without you doing any kind of social media pushing or... Well, I've, I've got a little social media going these days. But look, I'm, I'm kind of a believer in truth and advertising. So I'm not trying to get geological into the ears of everybody in the universe. Geological really is for students and practitioners of Chinese medicine. I mean, civilians are they're welcome to listen if they want to. And I hope but, they do because it, it really shows the level of uh, competency and intelligence, I think, that's happening in our profession. Mm. I mean, it's impressive. So you think it would be helpful for people that are non-practitioners is what I'm oh, hearing Some you of your episodes for sure. And I mean, that you could categorize, you know, episodes that are more public general interest. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for instance, you, it was part of your story. I mean, I can't tell you how many people over the years have shown interest as patients. And I say, well, why don't you just read the web that has no weaver and let's, you know, and see, we'll talk about it. Or, or have between heaven and earth if they have more of a spiritual, psychological interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, 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 how many people that have been helped by acupuncture become acupuncturists is a, probably a fairly significant number, especially when it becomes second and third careers or, or you know, second generation uh, practitioners now in our country.
in recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. And I'm delighted to say there are people who have listened to the podcast that have then gone on to become acupuncturists. It's been it's been gratifying. So yeah, I think you're right. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it that there could be a wider appeal, but yeah, I think there probably could be a wider appeal. And do you, do you use your opening essays as a, like blog posts? No, no, they're just little opening riffs. You, you can only get them on, uh, on the podcast. And are, are those scripted? I have a writing practice that, I sit down and think things through. I sit down. Yeah, I, I write almost every day. Uh-huh. It's actually something I started doing when I was in Taiwan. It just spontaneously arose. And I've been doing that pretty much ever since. And so that those little editorials just come from what I'm chewing on myself. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking as a fan right now, too. I mean, I think from the beginning, people could tell I'm a fan. That, you know, you, you, you come up with some pearls, you know, you really do. Not necessarily pearls in a, in a porcelain bowl. Uh, <laughs> that's for the insiders that know our profession. But really, uh, you know, if, if, probably if some young MBA came along and saw what you accomplished, they'd, they'd go, my God, we could blog you and uh, grow your audience, yada, yada, yada. Um, but it's grown organically and it's really commendable. Um, that you're reaching that many, many people. And uh, I know around Pacific, uh, here in San Diego, there's a buzz. When you have a new episode, there's a buzz. Mm. And uh, the, the students are, are listening, and it's... What are they saying? I'm so curious. You say there's a buzz. What, what's that buzz like? What do you... Not, I have to say that my daughter is a student at the school, and you met her. And they talk about the episodes, and they look forward mm. to your new releases, I don't know what they apply in the clinics or, you know, but there's certainly uh, clinical gems that your speakers come up with. And I think your history, uh, where we, you and I encountered each other, was sort of history. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we honor the, uh, the ancients in our profession, but we just take for granted our schools here. And the, the literature, you, we, the amount of literature we have to study with now is, is amazing. It's incredible. And, and it's just a fraction of what's potential. And I think you're encouraging the, the new generations to really become more self-aware and more conscious uh, about the, uh, the heritage that they're part of, that, that 
you know, my daughter didn't want to follow. She kept saying, I don't want to follow in your footsteps. And I said, you're not going to follow in my footsteps. I want you to stand on my shoulders and go much mm. farther than I've gone. Uh, because you have the potential, you have you have the mm-hmm. gifts. You don't. Some of the f- battles we had to fight. I mean, how many times did you have to explain to people in the early days about acupuncture? Now they just sign up. You know, they just they're referred by their doctor or their therapist or their friends. Um, it's a totally different landscape now, and uh, and you're helping. You know, you're helping pave that road, and it's really great. I've been really fortunate. First of all, that my friend badgered me and I went and got some acupuncture. And, and secondly, to have the great privilege of studying a medicine that's allowed me to sit in a room with anybody. They could even be in the process of dying. And I don't see them as sick people. You know, like I said, one of the issues I had with medicine as a young person, is I don't want to be around sick people. And because of the ways that we have of being with people and because of the ways we have of understanding how nature works, we have this fantastic sense, we have this idea of the Zheng Qi. There's this thing in us that's upright. It's always there. Up until the moment of death, it's there. There's always something upright. It's not just sickness. There's other things as well. And, you know, to have that great privilege to gain that perspective, have a set of tools, have a set of perspectives, filters, lenses and prisms as a old series that I used to listen to uh, on tape at my school, some lectures on Shang Han Lun, not just to be able to help people with their illness or their health in our clinics, but to be able, Rick, to take these perspectives that Chinese medicine is built on and see it flow through how society works, to see how it works in a relationship, to understand something of the cycles of aging. It's it's truly been a treasure to have been exposed to this and, and... the people that have taken their time to help me learn this. I, I love what you say about we stand on the shoulders of others and we have shoulders, hopefully, that allow others to stand upon. And and I want to put in a plug for, like you said, we we like to honor, you know, the elders and we often think of the elders as being Zhang Zhongjing and Sun Tzu Miao and you know, like the really, really old famous doctors. Again, you guys at the beginning that were following something and you had no idea where it was going to lead to. There was no profession yet. There wasn't even an idea of a profession, but guys like you, that just, there's a thing here and I'm following it. You know, you blazed a path for people like me. And yeah, I want to give a little shout out to the I'm going to call you guys the recent elders. You gave me the possibility of stepping from one profession into another. So I'm grateful. It's a privilege, really. Thank you for coming along. (laughs) What else do you need to know? Um, I mean, I went back and listened to some of your earliest podcasts in preparation for our chat today. 
Mm. And uh, is there a way you and, and you you were sort of like a fully formed idea with episode one that I heard with you were talking about children's uh, ear ear problems with a doctor in Chicago. I forget his name right now. Um, oh. I can see his face. I'm blanking on the yeah, name, you were, too. It was you, a while you, ago. You know, you, yeah, really. So you, you already Miller, had a fully Miller, formed, Dave, Dave Miller. David Miller, right. You already had a fully formed concept, and uh, you even had a few sponsors from the beginning. Did they carry over oh. from the everyday? Yeah, okay. So, so here's a piece I hadn't talked about, so let, let's fill that in for you. At that point, I probably had 50-ish episodes under my belt with everyday acupuncture, and and so I had a little bit of a sense of how to sit and listen. But really, I have to tell you, where I've learned to sit and listen, it didn't come from podcasting. It came from sitting in clinic with patients. Yes, the treatment room. It really does. I, I've been able to take that skill and use it in podcasting. It's very helpful. It's allowed me to do what I do. So there's that. Everyday acupuncture, because it was for a very broad audience, it's hard to get sponsorship for something like that, any kind of meaningful sponsorship. But if you have a niche podcast, you know, let's say you're a collector of chameleons, right? It's the Chameleon Collector Podcast. Guess what? You're going to be able to get sponsorship from people that sell things to chameleon aficionados. I'm serious. Yeah, bow ties for chameleons is what I saw. Bow ties for chameleons, right? <laughs> and so when I took this idea and, and took it from everyday acupuncture into geological, now we're going to go deep and geeky into Chinese medicine. Civilians probably aren't going to listen too much. Now you've got the opportunity to put your audience in front of people that would like to get in front of that audience. And so I had sponsorship from the very beginning of Geological. It was part of the experiment at Geological. Huh, I wonder if I can make a little money with it too. Can this thing be self-supporting? And, uh, and I've had sponsorship ever since. It's how we have the podcast. I've tried different models, including more of a uh, paywall uh, membership model. But really what works on the internet is advertising. That's, that's actually how it works. And so... You could say I have an advertising agency that uses its funds to do a podcast. And I'm very keen on bringing on sponsors who have something of value to share with the listeners so that you're not fast forwarding through Athletic Greens or something like that. I, I, I want to bring the listeners something that will bring them value in their clinical work. Beautiful. Um, what are your thoughts about the profession um, 10 years from now, 15? It's very, very hard to see the future. It's very hard to see the future. And I know for myself, so often in my life, I've had ideas at certain times about how things were. And I get 10, 12, 15 years down the road and I go, mm, yeah, nope, I don't think it works that way. So, Rick, I honestly don't know, but, but I want to share an idea with you that, that might make me sound like a heretic, okay? At this point, we have doctorates, we have, what, five or six years of training. I mean, it takes a long time to learn to be an acupuncturist. And 
I think there's a place for that. But increasingly, maybe this comes back to my eighth grade self who loved shop class and kind of, you know, there's a part of me that loves the trades. I, I wonder sometimes, especially as other professions are glomming on to what we do and they, they'll take it and rebrand it and rename it, dry needling, things like that. It makes me ask this question. Does acupuncture belong to us or do we belong to acupuncture? And if acupuncture belongs to us, all right, now we have to put up all these barriers and, you know, circle the wagons, make sure other people don't take it away. But if we belong to acupuncture, I mean, we're the ones that should know more about acupuncture than anybody else. I wonder, I, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder, it's, it's an inquiry I have. Maybe it's up to us to teach PTs how to do a modicum of safe acupuncture. Maybe it's up to us to teach nurse practitioners, here's a little acupuncture that you can do instead of prescribing that medication. I wonder if there's ways, because other professions are going to want to get their hands on needles and do something like acupuncture. Is there a way that we can midwife that process in a way? Or is there a way that we could train people not to do herbs, but just do acupuncture and do it well enough in, say, two years so they can go out and start helping people knowing that you will be learning acupuncture for the rest of your life? And maybe there's a place to have it be a trade. I don't know. I mean, these are the things I think about. I know it makes me sound like a heretic, but I'm often thinking outside the box. And, and as I look at where things are going these days, and sometimes I, you know, I've even heard people talking about, look, enrollment in schools is down and the price to learn acupuncture is high. And, you know, the NCCA themselves a while back said, you know, in, in a few years, we may not even be in business anymore. And, and it makes me wonder, well, if that's true, what might be the opportunities that would be available to us? So, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, I don't think I'm going to step into that pool of alligators specifically uh, with an opinion. But I would say this. I, I don't really like that we're identified as acupuncturists. I understand the value of that and the, the recognition and that it's a um, – it's so remarkable, you know, from the the visual point of view of putting needles in people and not having blood. I mean, I understand it's the sort of our dog and pony show that gets people's attention. I remember how intrigued I was when I first saw it or when you see it in movies or TV shows now. Mm. We're a technique of a, of a rich and deep and wide system of, of complete medicine. And, and you do acupuncture as the result of everything you've gathered along the way of learning that medicine. And certainly, you know, from the barefoot doctors and even what you're, you're describing maybe as a trade of acupuncture, that could be done in less than five years of training as far as just putting in, you know, having a cookbook of needles and put a needle here and there. I, I, I recognize that. But for the potential and the capacity of what the medicine is and can be, the impact we can have in an individual's life, the indiv impact we can have in society and culture, and and even this the spiritual evolution of of the species, 
I really think that it's a lifetime of study. And, you know, the, it's a, the five or six years is an initiation where your your vessel becomes open enough that you can receive and understand so much more. Sometimes I think I'm just, you know, I'm 45 years into a practice now. I feel like I'm just beginning sometimes, and uh, especially if it's just about putting needles on. Although I think that there's an intention and a resonance when I do a needling that probably reflects that I've been doing it for 45 years. But mm-hmm. if I had to take the state boards now, you know, who knows? Who knows? Well, the, but but the state boards are checking. Are you safe? Do you know enough? That's the ideal. To get started. That's the ideal. But they've they've turned it into like a uh, like an Olympian contest. I think of how much you know information you can have and and, and s- send out. So. I think the more we uh, honor the uh, the depth, complexity—I mean, certainly the complexity of human life—and and mm-hmm. even the um, trying to understand our medicine from a uh, within research, but not just efficacy of the treatment, but what's going on here? Uh, you know, what's 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 in the biofield? Uh, can I do distance healing? You know, there's just it's the it, the um, the capacity and the magic that's you know it's grounded it's it's logical and it's rational you know I, I think that in a way Western medicine is more obtuse as far as really what we know in terms of quantum physics and leading leading edge of science now that this rational reductionist point of view is counter science almost or counterintuitive it's, it's almost anti intellectual in some ways you, you hear it when you hear the drug the uh, advertisements for drugs on TV. It's like, how do why people take it after they list list the, the you know the visuals showing these happy people, and the auditory is giving you my God, you're going to have internal bleeding, you're going to have blindness, you're going to have tinnitus, you know. I just there's a, a disconnect there. I'm sort of going off the field, but I I, I want to maintain the not just the integrity, but the um, I'm going to use the word the depth again and the completeness of the system of medicine. I don't think we've scratched the potential of what we what we can do, especially in complex degenerative and long-term illnesses that, that mm. no drugs responding to or people are on 10 or 12 drugs. I'd like insurance companies to realize in, some, in many f- facets we're going to save them money. If they come to us for carpal tunnel treatment, Rather than have a surgery that's going to fail in five years, statistical probability, and and start to embrace what we're doing, and uh, you know, physical therapists have plenty of work in their fields, and chiropractors have plenty of work in in their field. And again, it's not because I think that needling is this esoteric thing that you need to study year after year after year. That acupuncture is the expression of the depth of knowledge that a person acquires and is learning along the way, and and continues to deepen. So that when that needle is put in, there's a resonance and an intelligence and an intention that goes way beyond just the, the insertion of a needle. There's a process that we go through that gets us to, I'm choosing this point and I'm going to needle it in this way. For me, that is the, that's the juicy part. For me, that's the, really what it's about. It's not just where the needle goes. It's how you get to knowing where the needle goes. 
And um, a component of the training that I would like to see uh, deepened and enriched is in communication, verbal and nonverbal communication and what we share with our patients. You know, if you study any sort of, I'm going to use the word hypnosis, but in the, in the broadest sense of effective communication, mm-hmm. the, the negative messages that come out of many practitioners, east east and west, has to be acknowledged and recognized and changed if we're going to see the potential for healing deepen and grow. Oh, man. You know what? I think we we could do a whole, not just a whole show. We could do a whole series on that. I think you put your finger on something, Rick Gold, that is near and dear to my heart. Because I, I think there's the what we do in clinic, and it's very important, and we have to be good at it. We've got to have a good toolbox. We have to have great tools in it and know what we're doing with it. There's that. But there's also this piece of how we are in clinic that I think is really important. And and you could put it under that rubric of communication or good communication or having rapport with your patients. I think there's something there Skillful use of language, because how you use language really matters. And there's something there about leaving room for all the things that are there, but maybe not necessarily asking for attention at the moment. Or they're part of the constellation of what's happening for a patient. But it's like you're only allowed to look at them from the corner of your eye. You, you know what I'm talking about? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, what, what we teach is, you know, the symptoms are what bring the person to the practitioner, and the signs is what the wise practitioner sees and recognizes that really takes you to the core of really what's going on with the person. And I think that that only comes about not from a written questionnaire or a robotic intake but it comes from human to human connection. And you know what our colleague and mentor, dear mentor and friend of mine, Ted Kapchuk, has shown in his research is it's this dynamic relationship is what sort of empowers the placebo effect. Well, here's something interesting. And I've noticed this in my practice. When the mind makes the body ill, we call it hypochondria. When the mind makes the body well, we call it placebo. Like, dude, what's going on with the mind? Yeah. yeah. You know, placebo used to be depicted as the devil, you know, the, in the research model, where if 30% of the time that's going to be a positive outcome, that's a good base to work from, mm. st- statistically. I don't want to in any way diminish the, the, the right herbal formula or even the right medication or the right points, but we, and I think, you know, this was known in our medicine long ago that the highest form of medicine is the practitioner from the example of their own being inspires the patient to become all they can be. It goes way beyond the formulas or the points or anything like that, that um, that we inspire because we haven't arrived, but we're trying to hone our tool and mm. our, our being through the, the virtues that are the virtues of being a human being and, and seeking to exemplify those and, and to nourish those. I think there is for sure a place for that. I would also suggest there's a place not for that. 
So, you know, we often hear about like the higher, middle and lower level of practitioners. I was talking with a friend the other day about meditation and this and that. We're talking about aviokateskvara, you know, who can appear as whatever someone needs to help relieve the suffering that they've got at that moment. This image was very impactful for me. It seems to me that there are patients who come to us and they've got knee pain. And you know what? Like Freud in the cigar. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes knee pain is just knee pain. And really, what does that patient need? They need someone to help them with the knee pain. Now, sometimes they'll come in and they've got knee pain. And in addition to the knee pain, there's this other stuff going on. It could be a kidney deficiency. It could be some kind of blood deficiency. It could be something very much that's a psychoemotive manifestation. Now, in that case, we need to appear differently and, and, and help at that level. I think it's really important to discern, to be able to use our discernment. What does this person need at this time? I always had a, a really hard time with, well, I'm just going to treat the spirit. Look, if the problem is a knee, treat the knee. But if the problem is the spirit, don't just treat the knee. And I think that comes from our discernment and uh, not projecting our own belief on every situation. Uh, okay. There's another whole conversation or two about dealing with our own beliefs in clinic. This, I think, is part of the how we are in our practices. And this, too, is part of what I think makes a practice so delicious over the period of time, being able to acquire a certain kind of discernment, and in the great privilege of being able to accompany people, you know, as we go through this life. As we walk, walk people back home. Walk them back home. Walk them back home. Yeah, like our other nice Jewish boy used Ram to like to say. <laughs> So, my friend, thank you for joining your podcast today. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for driving. Thank you for being willing to share more about yourself and not just being the uh, the cipher, the host. You know, asking all the questions. I I really think that your audience is going to appreciate and respect you even more for what you who you are and what you've done to get to where you are. Um, it's really deepened and enriched my, my recognition of who you are. And, uh, and I want to thank you for helping our profession to remember, because I think that is a critical part of our self-awareness and, our, and the, the strength of our foundation, you know, that we're not just hanging on the mast being blown by the wind, but we're really we're grounded in something very, very important and the, uh, the potential of what we can offer for healing societal and personal is cannot be diminished or underestimated. And so those of you that are students, uh, stay with it. Um, Michael and his years, myself and my years in the practice, it is a privilege to be involved in this medicine, and especially in, in the Western world at this time in history with the, the, the seeming monolith of the Western medical model and the strength of the hospitals and the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, we have our place. We, we have a seat at the table, and uh, we want to invite people into our home and sit at our table too because we got some delicious food and some pungent herbs cooking, and we got some potent needles. <laughs> And we've got some some big big open hearts and and uh, and sharpening shins, and so 
It's a beautiful profession, and we're blessed to be part of it. And, Michael, thank you for all that you've done to make us more self-aware and to introduce teachers. You know, we, we when we're in our schools, we have our teachers that we just bond to, and we think, you know, ideally, hopefully, that we just respect them so much. But you've allowed me to have teachers that I would have never met that are all, all over the place that, that embody a certain level of knowledge and wisdom uh, that's – it's nectar. It's just so sweet to be able to, to, to drink from it. And there's no other way I would have been available to, to, to experience these other people. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. It's truly my pleasure. And I feel like I've been so fortunate that I've had a chance to sit down and talk with so many people. The vast majority of people on Geological, they're not luminary practitioners. They're not you know, people in the spotlight. You may have never heard about them if you hadn't listened to Geological, unless you were their friend and you just hang out with them as you go for a walk around the lake or something. I am so optimistic about the medicine we practice because I I get to sit and talk with people who are just taking the principles and they're just working it in their clinic. They're not drawing attention to themselves. They're not even trying. They're just just living good lives, helping people and learning about the medicine. And I am grateful that they'll sit down and talk to me for an hour or so and share with me what they've discovered in their work. It's a great privilege. I am so indebted to the generosity of the people that have sat down for almost 350 episodes now uh, that I can share this. So truly, a thank you. There is no geological without the people who come to sit and have a conversation. And there is no geological without all y'all out there listening. So thanks for letting me do this. I'm still getting away with it. And may you continue for a long time. Thank you, my friend. Okay. And with that, we draw to a close. All right. Till next time. And I think you have to come back on again and talk about that, how we are in clinic some more. Just, just ring me up, my friend. Reflecting on this conversation with Rick, even though I was strongly repelled by conventional medicine in my youth, there was also a part of me that was attracted and curious about other ways of healing. I remember being interested in herbal medicine while still in high school. I was strongly anti-religious, but curious about spiritual development. I loved Sufi stories, Greek mythology, and attempted an essay on the Tao Te Ching in high school, which didn't get me a very good grade. And the teacher assured me I was misunderstanding it, which I'm sure I was. But all these curiosities, all these nudges off the path of the conventional, it set the trajectory that would eventually lead me to Chinese medicine. My story? Hmm, just a story. We all have some way of making sense of our lives. What I found most engaging in this conversation was Rick's North Star, that our medicine, it's not just for healing individuals, it also has something to do with our evolution as humans. I often enough have some resistance to that idea, but in this conversation, I found myself less pushing against that idea and more realizing 
that there is something in the principles and the practice of Oriental medicine that because it arises from the principles and the processes of nature, because it recognizes duality and non-duality, it gives us a potent set of tools, not just for healing, but yes, for evolution. The challenge for me is how to use these for exploration instead of explanation. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.